We're celebrating Lethal Ladies all this month on Parcast Presents. In one of my favorite episodes of Dictators, we covered Mary I of England. Overshadowed by her father, Henry VIII, for much of her life, Mary I of England arguably became the most powerful person in the world. If you enjoy these episodes, be sure to check out the Dictators podcast. Every Tuesday, we delve into the minds and motives of history's most despised despots. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. On June 22, 1536, 20-year-old Mary Tudor, daughter of King Henry VIII of England, faced an impossible decision. Before her was a legal document that demanded her signature. And if she didn't sign it, it meant almost certain death. But the terms of the document were practically impossible for her to reconcile with. She knew that if she signed it, it would be a betrayal of all her principles especially her Catholic faith. In doing so, she would acknowledge that her father, and not the Pope, was the supreme Christian leader. Additionally, she would have to accept Henry's marriage to his new bride and be forced to acknowledge that the marriage to her mother was unlawful. She would be admitting her own status as a bastard. Mary's two guiding principles were her mother and her religion. But she wasn't ready to die. She was beloved throughout all of England and knew that if she acquiesced and bided her time, eventually she could become queen. So young Mary capitulated. With one stroke of the quill, she renounced her devotion to the Pope and her mother. Mary knew that under the circumstances, she could be forgiven for doing so. But in signing Lady Mary's submission, as the document became known, Mary came to a significant conclusion. Never again would she submit to anyone's will. One day she would rule over all of England, and when her time came, any man or woman who had a hand in forcing her to sign the submission would be put to death. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we're going deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. In this series, we're delving into the stories of bloody female rulers in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. Last week, we finished our look into Queen Isabella I of Castile and how she took a small kingdom of the Iberian Peninsula and turned it into a Spanish empire. This week, we'll turn to Isabella's granddaughter, Queen Mary I, who reigned as Queen of England from 1553 to 1558. In this episode, we'll cover Mary's childhood as she survived King Henry VIII's turbulent marriages. And we will explore the Catholic devotion that eventually put them at odds and threatened her life. Next week, we'll dive into the circumstances that finally led her to seize the crown. 
We'll also look at how she squandered her respect among the people by sentencing her enemies to death, giving her the nickname Bloody Mary. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. For most of her life, Mary Tudor lived in the shadow of her father, King Henry VIII perhaps England's most famous royal monarch. Therefore, it's impossible to understand the trajectory of her life without understanding his. Much of Mary's reign as queen is a consequence of the decisions and actions made by her father. Although he's most widely known today for his six wives, Henry VIII was responsible for some of the most significant accomplishments and failures of any British monarch. One of the most brilliant men to occupy the throne, Henry was well-versed in literature, language, arts, and science. He was charming, handsome, and charismatic, literally and figuratively a Renaissance man. During his 38-year reign, Henry was responsible for the expansion of the British Navy into a global powerhouse, as well as for the acquisitions of Ireland and Wales. But Henry's most significant accomplishment was spearheading the English Reformation. For over a thousand years, Catholicism was the official religion throughout Europe. But in the early 1500s, Martin Luther, a former Catholic priest, had become disillusioned with various elements of Catholicism as dictated by the Pope in Rome. In particular, Luther loathed the selling of indulgences, a kind of absolution from sinning, and the superficiality of confession. As a result, Luther broke off from the church and created his own religious sect. He even translated the Bible into German. At that point, it had only been available in Latin. Luther's religious teachings spread like wildfire. But for the longest time, the fire failed to catch in England. Much of this had to do with the fact that King Henry VIII was such a staunch Catholic. However, Henry's and England's break from the Catholic Church would eventually occur. And it was within this period of upheaval that Mary Tudor, a devout Catholic herself, came of age. Born on February 18, 1516, Mary was the only child of Henry Tudor and Catherine of Aragon, the daughter of Queen Isabella of Castile. Mary wasn't their only child. However, she was the only child who managed to survive. Four of Catherine's previous pregnancies resulted in stillbirths or death in early infancy. Therefore, Mary's birth and survival were considered nothing short of a miracle. However, Mary was a girl. And for the sake of succession, Henry needed a male heir. Nonetheless, Henry and Catherine showered Mary with affection and praise befitting a royal only child. And since both were highly educated, Mary's own studies became their first priority. 
A precocious child, Mary studied Latin, French, and Spanish. Mary's Latin was so good that Henry Parker, one of the most respected writers of the era, described her as so ripe in the Latin tongue that your grace could not only perfectly read, write, and construe Latin, but furthermore translate any hard thing of the Latin into our English tongue. But beyond her skills in language, Mary became an accomplished musician and dancer. Even as a young child, she was known for entertaining dignitaries by playing the virginals, a precursor to the harpsichord. She also displayed the poise and intelligence of a young woman well beyond her years. Mary's mother, Catherine, did everything in her power to make sure her daughter was raised as a smart, virtuous, independent, and Catholic young woman. She didn't want Mary to simply exist as a future bride to a potential king. Rather, she wanted to instill in her all the qualities and characteristics that would allow her to one day lead on her own. So from a young age, education and Catholicism were the two most important aspects of Mary's life. And since Henry was still a practicing Catholic, he wholeheartedly encouraged her piety. Yet despite his encouragement and praise, Mary was largely relegated to the background. Instead, like many royal women of the era, he considered Mary as a political pawn. From an early age, Henry looked to Mary as a means to solidify alliances. At only two years old, Mary was promised to the infant French Dauphin, or heir apparent to France. In fact, an entire ceremony was performed to mimic a royal wedding. Few two-year-olds understand the significance or meaning of a wedding. And in this case, the ceremony was simply a pretense for establishing an alliance between England and France. But Mary wasn't like most two-year-olds. In fact, during the ceremony, Mary inquired of the officiant, Are you the Dauphin of France? If you are, I wish to kiss you. Unfortunately, the arrangement was nullified a few years later due to the constantly wavering relations with France. The entire process was a harbinger of future marriage arrangements, all of which fell apart eventually. Still, Mary enjoyed the pageantry of these events, in which she sang and danced for her future suitors or their adult handlers. After one such gala, an envoy reported, "...she promises to become a handsome lady." although it is difficult to form an idea of her beauty, as she is still so small. The young Mary spent most of her time with her mother. When she wasn't studying with various tutors, the two went hunting, attended mass, and even gambled, though by all accounts, she lost a lot more than she won. The relationship with her father, on the other hand, wasn't nearly as close. By 1525, Catherine of Aragon was 40 years old, it was clear that she would never give Henry the male heir he so desired. And when it came to his only child, Mary, he begrudgingly began to see her as the future of England. As a result, he decided to send nine-year-old Mary to the Welsh marches to preside over the Council of Wales. Though the appointment was more ceremonial than official, it did serve to officially establish Mary's role as heir to the throne. For the next three years, Mary ceremonially presided over the Welsh court. 
It was here that she learned the basics of politics and government, only occasionally returning to London to visit her mother and father. But in 1528, 12-year-old Mary returned to London for good. However, by the time Mary arrived, the relationship between Henry and Catherine had deteriorated significantly, and the future of England hung in the balance. Though Henry and Catherine were famous for sustaining one of the happiest of all royal marriages, Henry was nonetheless a notorious womanizer. Over the years, he'd taken a number of mistresses and grew to resent Catherine as she became older and less attractive in his eyes. And with the lack of a male heir, that resentment intensified. Of course, that had more to do with him than her. With time against him, Henry began looking for ways to legally end his marriage and find a new wife who could give him the son he desperately wanted. Ever the philanderer, a young woman caught Henry's eye in the mid-1520s. But unlike previous mistresses, this lady refused to submit to Henry's sexual demands. That is, unless they were married. So Henry's mission was clear. Divorce Catherine of Aragon and marry the beautiful and effervescent Anne Boleyn. At the time, though, divorce was illegal within the Catholic Church and required a dispensation from the Pope. In 1527, Henry took his case to Pope Clement VII. Naturally, this was big news around Europe, and it didn't take long to reach the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, a man who just happened to be Catherine's nephew. Charles V, obviously, was on his aunt's side and made his own appeal to the Pope, deny Henry's dispensation or face my army. Unfortunately for Henry, the Pope was happy to oblige the emperor. Furious at this perceived betrayal, Henry set in motion a series of events that would not only shape the future of the Christian church in Britain, but would alienate himself from Mary, his virtuous Catholic daughter. All for the sake of a divorce, Henry initiated perhaps the most significant religious event in Britain's history, the English Reformation. The following decade would see Henry name himself as the supreme head of the Christian Church, translate the Bible into English for the first time, and seize and redistribute the Catholic Church's property, including the dissolution of monasteries all of which had the desired effect of creating a nasty schism between Henry, the leaders of the Catholic Church, and his own daughter. The ardent Catholic that she was, Mary took the separation personally. Meanwhile, his bride-in-waiting, Anne Boleyn, sought to amplify the discord between father and daughter. Anne knew that Henry was still fond of Mary. She also knew that if she couldn't produce a male heir, Mary would still be first in line to inherit the kingdom. So Anne got to work sowing the seeds of distrust. And nothing was off limits, not even murder. Coming up, Henry VIII finally gets his divorce, and his new wife wastes no time driving a wedge between her husband and his daughter. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. By 1530, it had been three years since 14-year-old Mary had returned from her time in the Welsh court. The English Reformation was underway, and her parents' marriage was rapidly on the decline. Back in London, Mary continued her educational and religious pursuits and spent most of her time in the company of her mother, Catherine of Aragon. But unbeknownst to Mary, a vindictive and determined Anne Boleyn was waiting in the wings to bring her down. 39-year-old Henry's affections for the 20-something Anne Boleyn were no secret in the royal court. And as the royal marriage deteriorated, Anne became increasingly bold in her speech and actions, especially concerning Henry's wife and daughter. At one point, she remarked to one of Catherine's ladies-in-waiting that she cared not for the queen or any of her family, and that she would rather see her hanged than have to confess that she was her queen and mistress. During this period, Henry was constantly presenting Catherine of Aragon with divorce documents. In accordance with her Catholic faith and steadfast belief that she was the rightful queen, Catherine refused to sign. With each refusal came threats from Henry to punish her, including a permanent separation between her and Mary. The effect of these threats was devastating on Mary and Catherine. Physically, both began experiencing stomach and digestive issues that were possibly a manifestation of stress. These ailments would continue to plague Mary throughout her life. As 1530 continued, Henry saw less and less of Mary the closer he got to Anne Boleyn. Not only did Anne drive a wedge between Henry and Mary, but she also managed to divide Mary and her mother. During that summer, Henry and Anne Boleyn took an extended trip together. In the meantime, Mary and Catherine, who had been banished from the royal court by this time, spent the summer together at one of their estates. However, when Henry and Anne returned from their vacation, Henry issued an ultimatum. If Catherine still refused to sign the divorce papers, he would order Mary to a nearby outpost to resume her studies. This would essentially make the separation between Mary and Catherine permanent. Although it broke her heart to do so, Catherine refused to acquiesce to her husband's demands. Henry made good on his threat, Mary never saw her mother again. In 1532, Henry's quest for religious and royal omnipotence took a giant leap forward. Henry not only awarded Anne Boleyn a royal title and property, but he forced the English clergy to acknowledge him as their lord and commander. This meant that if any decision were to be made concerning the growing Church of England, Henry would have the final say even when it came to his divorce. As for their personal lives, 1532 was also a big year for Henry and Anne. Though they still weren't officially married, by December the two finally consummated their relationship. By Christmas time, Anne was pregnant. Which meant Henry's divorce situation needed to be expedited. 
On January 25th, the two were finally, albeit secretly, married. The ceremony was officiated by Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, one of Henry's most trusted advisors and senior figures among the British clergy. Cranmer had been instrumental in convincing Henry to separate from the Catholic Church and to pursue his marriage to Anne Boleyn. And he soon proved just as instrumental in attempting to revoke all of Mary and Catherine's royal privileges. On May 23rd, Cranmer made the official announcement that Henry and Anne were married and declared the king's marriage to Catherine of Aragon invalid. To celebrate the occasion, a visibly pregnant Anne Boleyn rode through the city en route to her coronation ceremony. But as she made her way through the streets of London, Anne was met with shouts and jeers. Not a single spectator shouted, God save the Queen, as was customary for such an occasion. It was proof to Anne that Catherine remained immensely popular with the British public, despite her divorce and demotion. In fact, Catherine was ordered to surrender her title, her coat of arms was removed from Westminster Hall, and she was unable to leave her remote estate without Henry's permission. Worst of all, Henry banned all forms of contact between Catherine and Mary. Although it pained 16-year-old Mary tremendously, she never let her father know. In fact, she attempted to trick him into thinking that she remained loyal to him. Instead of disparaging her father or his new bride, Mary praised them both. Her plan seemed to work. Henry commended his daughter's wisdom and prudence. For the time being, it appeared that Mary would remain princess. For Anne Boleyn, this arrangement was unacceptable. She resented Mary's popularity with her father and the English public. She was even heard to remark, I would have the princess for the lady's maid, but that is only to make her eat humble pie, or to marry her to some varlet, which would be an irreparable injury. Anne also believed that her forthcoming, undoubtedly male child was going to usurp Mary as the king's heir. Unfortunately, when the baby was delivered on September 7, 1533, Anne gave birth to a girl, Elizabeth. When news of the child's gender spread across Europe, many felt it was Henry's punishment for betraying Catherine and the Catholic Church. Baby Elizabeth even received a disparaging nickname, the concubine's little bastard. Blinded by rage and a perceived betrayal on the part of Anne's womb, Henry irrationally took his rage out on Mary. Like her mother before her, Mary was stripped of her royal title and banished to an estate where she would essentially act as a servant to her new stepmother. That is, unless Mary agreed to sign an official title acknowledging her demotion. If Henry couldn't control the sex of his children, he could at least try to control their status. But just like her mother, Mary stuck to her principles and refused. And with each refusal, she received additional punishments, whether it be confiscation of her jewelry or whatever scant privileges she still possessed. The great irony behind all of these punishments was that Mary's defiance actually earned Henry's respect. After one visit to her new estate and yet another one of Mary's refusals to reject her royal title, 
his emotions got the best of him. As Henry was departing, he caught a glimpse of his 17-year-old daughter on the terrace, bending her knees in deference to her father. Henry bowed and touched his cap in return. As he rode away, tears of pride filled his eyes. When Anne Boleyn heard about the gesture of paternal love, she redoubled her efforts to get rid of Mary once and for all. Anne attempted to convince Henry to prosecute Mary and Catherine for breaking the increasingly strict anti-Catholic edicts that were being enacted across England. She pleaded with Henry that the queen and princess deserve death more than all those who have been executed and that they were the cause of all. But Anne Boleyn wouldn't need Henry or anyone else to execute Catherine. In January 1536, she suddenly died of a stomach ailment, one of the many health problems that had plagued her since Anne entered her life. Naturally, the 19-year-old Mary was inconsolable. Her hero, the woman responsible for her education and upbringing, was gone. And despite the widespread love Mary still received across England, without her most steadfast ally, she was now virtually alone. And yet the tide suddenly began to swing back in Mary's favor. In early 1536, Anne was a few months pregnant. However, on the day of Catherine's burial, the child, a son, was delivered stillborn. The perfectly healthy Anne blamed it on a different royal medical emergency. Four days earlier, Henry VIII had been badly injured in a jousting accident. Many in the court, including Anne, attributed the stillbirth to her stress and worry for her husband's health. Unfortunately, Henry demonstrated zero empathy for his wife. In fact, due to frustrations with not having a son, Henry decided that Anne Boleyn wasn't the right woman to be his wife. It was time to find a new bride. And ever the Lothario, he already had one in his sights. Jane Seymour was a lady of the royal court known for her beauty and charm, as well as her sympathy toward Mary. Henry attempted to woo Seymour with lavish gifts, but just like Anne Boleyn, she refused his advances unless the two were married. So Henry got to work on one of his capricious and enormously misguided plans. To get Anne out of the way, Henry accused her of conducting affairs with other members of the king's chamber. All suspects were arrested and sent to the Tower of London. The absurd charges labeled Anne as an accursed and poisoning whore. He essentially blamed her for attempting to kill Mary. Naturally, the men arrested with her refused to confess, since they hadn't engaged in any improper behavior. Nonetheless, Henry had them executed. Then, on May 17, 1536, it was Anne's turn. Ever the gentleman, Henry decreed that as her final mercy, Anne should be beheaded rather than burned alive. Perhaps for poetic effect, Henry ordered that a French executioner perform the task with a sword rather than an Englishman with an axe, as was customary. With Anne Boleyn dead... King Henry wasted no time marrying Jane. Literally within two weeks of Anne's execution, Jane was queen. 
It's unclear exactly what Mary thought of the sudden turn of events. No doubt she wasn't too sad to see Anne Boleyn go, given the damage Anne had done to her and her mother. And as for her new stepmother, Jane, it's probable that she saw her as an ally, a welcome breath of fresh air. It was already well known that Jane took pity on Mary. Now that she was queen, she hoped to reconcile her new husband with his estranged daughter. She petitioned Henry to restore Mary's title as princess. But perhaps under the impression that his new bride would finally be the one to give him a male heir, Henry refused. He would never recognize his Mary's status until she acknowledged that his marriage to her mother had been invalid and she renounced her Catholic faith. And while Henry may have blamed Anne Boleyn for poisoning the relationship with his daughter, the true culprit was his trusted advisor, Thomas Cromwell. Cromwell acted as enabler-in-chief to Henry in all matters, from religion to his many affairs. And it was Cromwell who planted the idea of forcing Mary to sign a document of submission or face the penalty of death. Just weeks after Anne's beheading, Cromwell began rounding up members of the royal court who were sympathetic to Mary and imprisoned them in the Tower of London. The message was clear. If Mary didn't sign the document, she was next. The two guiding principles in Mary's life were her mother and the Catholic faith. Signing the document meant renouncing them both. But Mary understood her father's capricious nature, and more importantly, she knew that if she'd made it this far, she wasn't going to give up now. God and her mother would forgive her. So on June 22, 1536, Mary signed the document. Deep down, though, Mary knew it would also be the last time she would bend to anyone's will. She owed it to God, her mother, and herself to keep fighting and earn her rightful place as queen. Once she did, she would exact revenge on all those who had forsaken her, particularly Thomas Cromwell. Coming up, Mary returns to the royal court and Henry's jousting injuries take their toll on his mental and physical health. Now back to the story. On June 22, 1536, Mary signed the document of submission. Though it meant renouncing her two most steadfast personal convictions, the 20-year-old princess was now back in her father's good graces. And more than that, in her new stepmother, Jane Seymour, Mary found a champion and a confidant something she'd been sorely lacking since the death of her mother. Yet, Mary was still not reinstated as Henry's rightful heir. Instead, a new decree was signed, conferring succession to any children born by Jane Seymour. And on October 12, 1537, Henry finally got his son, Edward. Henry couldn't have been happier. And although Mary and Elizabeth were technically not among the line of succession, spirits were high among the whole family and reconciliation was in the air. But the happiness would be short-lived. Two weeks later, Jane Seymour died of complications from childbirth. Though the infant Edward and four-year-old Elizabeth had no shortage of servants and handlers, 
It was Mary who devoted much of her time caring for them. In the meantime, the aging Henry hoped to find a new wife before it was too late. And for wife number four, he looked outside the English court. Anne of Cleves was the sister of the Protestant leader of Germany. Unfortunately, Henry agreed to the marriage before ever seeing her, and in January 1540, after meeting her for the first time in person, he was none too pleased. In fact, Henry complained incessantly about how ugly and repulsive she was to him. Nonetheless, the two were married. According to Henry, the wedding night was not one to remember. When asked about it, Henry replied, I liked her before not well, but now I like her much worse. For I have felt her belly and her breasts, and when I felt them, I had neither will nor courage to proceed any further in matters. But after six months of marriage, Henry was able to get an annulment. He was back on the market. But not for very long. On July 28, 1540, the 49-year-old king married 19-year-old Catherine Howard. Howard was an immediate hit in the royal court. The new queen was five years younger than Mary and a cousin of Anne Boleyn. Nonetheless, Mary and Catherine remained cordial. Unfortunately, the same couldn't be said for the bride and groom. Shortly after their marriage, Henry learned that Catherine Howard had carried on several relationships with men of the court prior to their union. Offended and jealous, Henry had the marriage annulled on the grounds of adultery. And in early February 1542, after a sham trial, Catherine Howard was beheaded for treason. Once again, Henry wasted no time finding a new wife, and the sixth time was the charm. On July 12, 1543, he married Catherine Parr, who was no stranger to marriages either, this being her third. The union was a happy one, even for Mary. In fact, the next four years would be among the most stable of Mary's life, and Catherine Parr ended up being almost a surrogate mother. Parr even encouraged Mary to translate Erasmus's paraphrases on the four Gospels from Latin to English. During this time, Henry was either away or engaged in relatively small-scale battles. As such, he left much of the local governance to Catherine Parr, who shared those responsibilities with Mary and encouraged her insight and participation. Though this period ranked among the happiest of Henry's life, it also marked the most rapid decline of his health. Knowing he wasn't long for this earth, in 1546, he updated his will to include Mary and Elizabeth as his rightful heirs. However, Edward, as the male heir, would still be first in line to rule. Then, on January 28, 1547, Henry finally succumbed to his myriad of ailments. As princess, Mary was granted thousands of acres of land, multiple estates, and a small fortune. She would also take it upon herself to raise both Elizabeth and Edward in her father's absence, which she was practically doing already. With Henry VIII dead, it meant that nine-year-old Edward was king, in name only. Until he turned 18 and could reign officially, the kingdom would be controlled by a ruling council. One whose most prominent member was Mary's nemesis, Thomas Cranmer. 
and Cranmer was determined to make Mary's life miserable. Only a few months after Henry's death, Cranmer issued a new series of anti-Catholic injunctions that served as a direct challenge to Mary. Despite signing the submission document years earlier, Mary had never officially renounced her faith and remained a practicing Catholic. Cranmer had always viewed Mary as a usurper. For her part, Mary was entirely aware of Cranmer's intentions and held him in equally low regard. To that end, the stage was set for a war between Mary and Cranmer. The key battle was for influence over the young Edward. Although Mary was close to her half-brother, Thomas Cranmer became even closer to Edward. In doing so, he convinced the young king to punish Mary for continuing to practice Catholic rituals rather than the new Protestant ones outlined in Cranmer's injunctions. In fact, Cranmer convinced the entire royal council to go after Mary. By 1551, John Dudley, a senior member of Edward's court, took control of the royal council. Dudley, a perpetual schemer, sought to eliminate Mary and Elizabeth from the line of succession for his own personal gain. With Cranmer's help, Dudley convinced Edward to once again remove Mary and Elizabeth from the royal estate, all of which occurred as Edward was growing increasingly ill with tuberculosis. As Edward's health worsened, the two essentially tricked the sickly king into naming Dudley's daughter-in-law, Lady Jane Grey, as his successor. Dudley dispatched a message to Mary claiming that if and when Edward should die, Dudley would help Mary ascend to the rank of queen. But Mary knew the truth. If she were to return to London, Dudley would have her arrested and imprisoned. In fact, she was aware that Dudley had already dispatched spies around the kingdom to monitor her. After being tipped off that a group of Dudley's henchmen were coming to arrest her, Mary and a group of loyal subjects made a daring escape to one of her secluded country estates. While she was there on July 6th, Edward died. Four days later, Jane Grey was proclaimed queen. The ceremony was miserable and somber. No one in attendance was heard to shout, Long live the Queen! In fact, the opposite was true. Many called for Mary's coronation instead. Despite her Catholic faith, or perhaps because of it, and certainly because of her tenacity and character, Mary was still beloved. But now, much as she had during the brief reign of Anne Boleyn, Mary feared for her life. Dudley and Cranmer, her two nemeses, were in charge, and they wouldn't rest until Mary was dead or behind bars. But Mary was determined to take what was rightfully hers. And although she was holed up in a castle outside of London, she still had a loyal entourage. Now, all she needed was a plan to defeat John Dudley, depose Jane Grey, and declare herself queen. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore how Mary finally became queen and the unfortunate decisions that led her from being one of the most popular queens 
to one of the most despised. Among the many sources we used for these episodes, we found Mary Tudor, England's first queen, by Anna Whitelock, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Dictators was written by Tony Goodman with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.